Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On the afternoon of Monday the 3rd of April 1995, Paul Harrigan sat in a Phillips Street office as his brother Mark told an assembly of ARL power brokers and money men about the gargantuan offer the Knights captain had just received to sign with Super League. An agitated John Quayle asked for five minutes, and with him out of the room followed Phil Gould, Bob Fulton, James Packer, and Channel 9 executive David Leckie. As Harrigan waited in stunned silence, the implications of this life-changing morning sinking in, through the muffled discussions next door, two words rang out loudly. He's vital. The next three days would prove those words to be more accurate than anyone in that room could have known. This is Chief Drives the Bus, the 11th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Okay, welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? G'day, mate. I'm great. This is a a personal one for you. We're going to delve deep into the heart of your hometown. This Chief Drives the Bus episode is, is one of the key memories for me from Super League. So I'm sure we'll we'll get into a lot of those memories as we go on. At the top, I just wanted to set this up and give a broader context to the Newcastle story during Super League. Uh, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Newcastle were key to the ARL's fight back, became a big part of the story for the next three years, capped off with that incredible grand final win. But it's always been one of those hack pub statements you know oh if, if if Newcastle went to Super League it would have been game over for the ARL that's a statement I've made in the past <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that which we'll get into but I just wanted to also talk about how important Newcastle was strategically so we can see it from the ARL perspective if they didn't have Newcastle their position outside of Sydney was very tenuous but what about Newcastle was so vital to Super League that within the month they'd announced that the ninth Super League franchise would be in the Hunter region. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of this is partly it's a payback to stuff the ARL, but also this is where you see the pay TV side of things coming in, where it was an important regional area to sell Foxtel subscriptions. (laughs) And I I, I have heard and I haven't looked into how true this is. So if anyone has some insight into this, I'd like to hear it. But it was very important logistically to have, you know, enough subscriptions to run the cable, you know, from Brisbane to Sydney, basically. So it was an important geographical stop. I think it was Austar at that time in Hunter Region. Yeah, it would have been. So a couple of questions immediately come to my mind, and, and I want to get some of your thoughts on this. So do you think that Newcastle going to Super League would have been the death blow that it's been spoken of? I don't know if the ARL would ever die. I think it would just you know, hold on like Sydney Club Rugby at the minimum, probably hold on a lot better than that. But it would have been a major, major uh, wound. I tend to think you're right. I don't think the Knights defecting would have killed the ARL there and then. I think it would have sputtered along. But two things, I think the cultural impact would have been enormous. So although News Limited came out of the compromise 
on top in in most ways. Culturally, the 1997 ARL season is the official season of rugby league. Yeah, and I, I just think if that grand final was a blowout, it wouldn't be. <laughs> not not as much, nowhere near as much. So I think it's really important from that perspective. And feeding off that, it placed the ARL in a stronger bargaining position than they would have been. Absolutely, yeah. And the other thing about it that I always find funny is the line that goes along with that you know, pub dickhead line is always like, the ARL was just Newcastle and the Crushers. It's like even in the middle of this, the Gold Coast were a complete afterthought. <laughs> like, How much clearer is it that they were this... <laughs> El Dorado that was never going to happen where, where like in the middle of this war we're just forgetting that they existed <laughs> but the other question I had for you as someone who grew up in the Newcastle region if Newcastle had gone to Super League would the town have gone with them would you have got the toxic environment the Aussies for the ARL all the other crazy situations that we're going to get into later in the show and, and this is what makes me irate about the whole war is there's no way in the world the town wouldn't have gone with them. They love the Knights more than life itself in Newcastle. I tend to agree with you there too. So I just wanted to set up the broader conversation with that, and we're going to be touching on a lot of those themes as this chapter goes on. But let's set it up by looking at Newcastle in 1994 into 1995. And it may not surprise long-time listeners to know that there were severe money troubles (laughs) involved. So... The, the Knights were, were doing it a bit tough in 1994. They had got into a, a $2 million debt through necessary renovations to Marathon Stadium uh, and other administrative issues. Well, hang on. What were the renovations? They only had one grandstand and three hills. <laughs> Was there a bindi patch on the dry hill? Or? So I can't speak for how effective the improvements to the ground were, but they took on a $2 million debt to make some improvements. And then had a really bad year in terms of gate takings on the back of some bad weather and poor form on the field. I love when weather's blamed for financial <laughs> catastrophes. <laughs> There's a couple of showers in May and put us $2 million in the hole. So the New South Wales Rugby League were forced to step in and appoint an advisory committee that came in uh, and made some steps to turn the ship around. This included convincing the New South Wales government to take on that debt and be responsible for the administration of Marathon Stadium. It just goes to show so they didn't have an affiliation with with a strong leagues club. The old adage in Newcastle was that, that West, who now own the Knights, was the local league team and this giant pokey den like Panthers. And they were, you know, buying all the good players and with all this pokey money. And Knights didn't have an affiliation with anything like that. You've got to ask the question, why? I'm happy they didn't, just for moral standpoint. But I mean, every other club in the comp's got to... Yeah. Big league clubs. What were they thinking? It's a funny one, isn't it? But we we saw that at the start when we did our origin of the Broncos episode and talked about the Knights. That was something they trumpeted at the time that we weren't going to be funded by pokies and now look six at years them. in. You know? um, so plenty more Newcastle West talk as the episode goes on as well. So that advisory committee had made some of the right moves and put them in a much stronger position at the end of 1994 to the point that Neil Cadigan in the Rugby League Week reported that the Knights started the season $2 million in debt without a major sponsor or even a chief executive. Now they are in the top five for the first time this season. They have real prospects of landing a major sponsor. (laughs) That's a worry when a first grade team having prospects of landing a major sponsor is considered a win. A one-team town (laughs) in a rugby league heartland has prospects. (laughs) So for these reasons, they were a prime candidate for Super League. So not only were they 
in desperate need of some money and some clout and backing, but there was that ingrained bitterness and a feeling that the ARL or New South Wales Rugby League hadn't looked after them like they might have. And it, that goes back to the same, they look after Sydney first kind of mentality. Yeah, but so what's the beef that they didn't look after them? In what ways? Well, I guess the the thing is that they sent in an advisory committee and told them how to run the place, but didn't actually contribute. You know, it didn't bail them out. But <laughs> <laughs> So they're angry that, that their incompetence wasn't paid for. Is that that's, that's where it comes down. I feel more sorry for the ARL with every episode. It's like, they're not hiding to nothing. Like they're supposed to be uh, impartial, but then they're supposed to step in and pay for their debts. And you know, like yeah, what, what are they supposed to do? <laughs> so in the late stages of 1994 into 1995, it was spoken about not at the same level as Brisbane and Canberra, but almost that it was just commonly assumed that Newcastle were on the radar of Super League and, and might well go. So they were the one of the last teams to sign that ARL loyalty agreement one of the first to sign a confidentiality agreement with News Limited. So there was definitely fire to the smoke and a real sense that they were going to go. I think the only issue with Newcastle going wouldn't be like loyalty to the ARL. It's more our version to change up there. Like in that era, they would test products in Newcastle, as I stated before, because if you can get over in Newcastle, it's going to get over in the whole of Australia. (laughs) So like, I think it's a risk still for them to go just based on that. And on top of that, it was built into their constitution where if they were to leave the ARL, they needed a 75% vote by the members to play in a different com- competition. Getting anyone to vote yes to a referendum in Newcastle's quite, <laughs> quite difficult. <laughs> but with the players, that might have been achievable. Yeah, well, if Chief came out and said, you know, we got to vote yes, everyone would have done it. But just a side note, I, I love administrators within the ARL's inability to get past their personal grievances <laughs> and, and see the importance of Newcastle in the middle of this war. So th- this is jumping ahead. So after the players had signed, the loyal clubs were at a meeting at Phillip Street talking about their next steps. It wasn't known which way the Knights' uh, administration was going to go. Graham Richardson said that one club administrator came up to him to talk to him about Newcastle chairman Terry Lawler and said, Graham, we've got to rub Lawler out. <laughs> so back to the... Back it's just, to... B- it's just so funny. <laughs> the, in the midst of World War One, you're in the trenches and you're trying to like stab one of your own guys in the back. Mate, Corporal Johnston, he's... <laughs> so you'd think with all of this, with there being some ingrained bitterness within the Knights administration, both sides keenly aware of the importance of Newcastle. Someone would have clued the Knights players in or given them some direction or a heads up or anything. Uh, But of course, that didn't happen. So Paul Harrigan would have been one of those that found out on April Fool's Day when he got the paper, (laughs) except for the fact that a journalist from the Newcastle Herald saved him the trouble by calling him on the Friday night on March 31 to ask him if he knew anything about what was going on with Super League. So that was Brett Keeble, who was a key contact for the Knights at the Newcastle Herald. So as the story was emerging during the day, Keeble thought that the players might know something, which they didn't. The Newcastle Herald is basically a fanzine for the Knights. (laughs) But I, I love the way Paul Harrigan paints the picture in his book. He said, The last day of March still had that late summer feel and smell and I was looking forward to getting home for a shower. (laughs) 
Like all he's missing was, you know, Meryl Bainbridge was blasting out of car radios across the country. A little show called Man Oh Man was teaching us all to love again. Man Oh Man, what a classic. So needless to say, the next morning, that Saturday morning of April Fool's Day, as the Knights players were loading up into the bus to head down to Sydney for their Sunday game against the Tigers, Super League was the only topic of conversation. So all the players were aware of it now. But again... All they were going off was what they'd heard in the papers and you know, no one from either side had spoken to them. No one at the Knights had spoken to them. It's a giant oversight from Super League. And so that Saturday night, it turned into chaos at their Parramatta Travelodge Hotel with the players in their rooms and Super League operatives calling them, pretending to be journalists, doing all they could to get through to the players. To the point where football manager Robert Finch eventually told the hotel to divert all calls to him and, you know, greeted with panicked players like Matthew Johns and Andrew Johns knocking on his door saying, we're going to miss out. They're telling us we've got to get down to the city and sign now. He said, just relax, think about the game tomorrow. If there's going to be a Super League, they'll want you. So just forget about it for tonight. Easy for Finchy to say. (laughs) So let's talk about it now. This is absolute madness that... It was obvious Newcastle were important. We could see that in everything that Super League did after they missed out on the Knights. They knew that they had a pretty good team of players as well as being an important strategic team. They're sending Malcolm Nodes' toothbrush in a taxi for an impromptu trip to Perth, yet they can't send anyone down the road to Parramatta Travelodge to have someone there to sign them up. It's Yeah, it's insane. They can't tell the, the Knights executives who they've been talking to it's on, we're going to get it done. I wonder if they thought that they were just basically a shoo-in or something. The only thing I can think of is that their plan was to get out of Sydney. So you could see that all the places they were hitting, the Sharks in Perth, the Raiders in Townsville, Brisbane in Brisbane. So I think the idea was to get them on the Monday, which goes back to the idea that they were still thinking that the secret wouldn't get out. Well, we've been through this in earlier episodes. Have someone going to each club that you want on the same day at the same time. Like a catastrophic error. Yeah. So the Knights made short work of Balmain on that Sunday Arvo, winning 46-12 to and headed back up the road to Newcastle. Their new coach, Mal Reilly, said that there'd be a meeting once they got back to Marathon where they would discuss everything going on with Super League. At that meeting, their CEO, Brad Mellon, addressed the players and said the Knights would support whatever decision the players wanted to make, which again... Some direction, some instruction, some idea that this is where we're leaning or Super League are going to be speaking to you. So, you know, hold on and wait for them. Like there just seemed to be no instruction for them. Crazy. If you were put in this position yourself and everyone else is signing these triple contracts, wouldn't you be a bit antsy? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so with this environment, Paul Harrigan got home and about 10.30 at night, got a phone call from Phil Gould, which started the ARL's fight back. So Phil Gould said, we want you, don't sign with Super League, we're going to look after you, and made an arrangement with Harrigan that he would come down to Sydney in the morning to speak to the ARL. So he had a nine o'clock meeting lined up with the ARL at Phillips Street. Uh, Once he made that arrangement, he called up Robert Finch to let him know what was happening. And he said that Finch seemed a little off-put by what he was saying, and he'd get Brad Mellon to give him a call 
and Harrigan said that Mellon was even more agitated about it and at this point has finally said, don't do anything until you talk to Super League. And it seems that Mellon has also called up Malcolm Node at Super League to advise what was happening. Is there a more rugby league name than Brad Mellon? Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And then after that, our old friend David Smith called Paul Harrigan to say, there's an offer for you waiting at Super League. Come and see us before you go to the ARL so we can talk. So that arrangement was made and Harrigan went to bed knowing that there was a big day in store for him tomorrow. It's just such great timing to be the you know, the best prop in the country at that time Yeah, in that year when the money comes out. And to not only be the best prop, but to be the best prop and the captain of a team that was as vital as... Yeah, just you know. <laughs> right place, right time. But also with a brain behind him. Uh, and I not only speak of his own brain, but his brother's brain. So his brother, Mark, was his representative. So he came down to Sydney with him. And you could tell right away once they got into that Super League meeting that it made sense why Super League tried to avoid players having representation. So I just love this quote from Mark Harrigan. We were never really intimidated by them because the situation was unique. I knew Paul was a vital part of their strategy and much more than just a pawn in the game. I was pretty confident that we were in a position of strength. Absolutely. Imagine if all the other players realized the position of strength they were in. Well, poor old uh, Jason Croker had Laurie Daly representing him. (laughs) And Paul said that having his brother there was a real calming influence for him, that he said, I couldn't help but think about all the times he talked me through the build-up to some of my biggest games. He had eased me through the pre-game nurse before, and this was no different. Sound like really close brothers. Yeah. And so with that, with a big... Super League offer, Harrigan could relax because he knew that one way or the other he was going to be looked after and everything was going to work out okay for him. Mm. So he headed down to the ARL to have the meeting that I talked about in the opening monologue. And again, right away, it shows you the value of having people like Bob Fulton and Phil Gould in the room. He said, seeing Bozo and Gus there was comforting and encouraging. They'd been my representative coaches for New South Wales and Australia since 1992 and were men I'd always been able to trust. Knowing they were there on the front line, fighting to save the ARL from annihilation immediately put me at ease. We can just say straight off the bat, episode one of this, without Bozo and Gus, there's no ARL. No. Yeah. Without any doubt. So any questions about the the payments they received, I I think they deserved it. I think they deserve more. (laughs) Well, I I think they've both got got out of the whole situation pretty well, (laughs) monetarily and otherwise. Need to give David Smith a few props for organising the Super League meeting before ARL, because at least he bumped the price up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mentioned in that monologue that John Quayle uh, was agitated, and that was because of the extent of that Super League offer. I just picture Quayle permanently agitated. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't just about football. So one of the big things that Mark Harrigan was talking about was being looked after after football. Have, and obviously he'd just been to Super League, so he'd heard their spiel about their concerns about player welfare and all the things they were going to do for players off the field. So they came into that ARL meeting with the same mindset. And who happens to be in, there, in the room? David Leckie, Channel 9 boss. So Paul Harrigan had already done some work with Channel 9. I mean, the Channel 9 sweetener contract started way back then. Amazing. So just think, if he hadn't assigned with the ARL, there'd be no that's gold. <laughs> I'll never, ever diss the fact that Channel 9 saves Joey from going to Union. Because that's yeah. one of the, the greatest things in the history yeah. of the game. But it's just funny that it started back in 95. Yeah. <laughs> 
And the other concern besides the money, which with the Channel 9 sweetener uh, got past the Super League offer, beyond being looked after after he finished playing football was, is there going to be any football to play? Is there going to be a competition? So Harrigan Smart... This is a question that no one thought to ask apart apart from the Harrigans. (laughs) So Harrigan Smartly said, who else has signed? To which they answered, Brad Fittler. So the smarts of him to ask that, the balls of him to sign up for the ARL knowing that that was all they had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, we're showing the the Rashomon nature of this story where in Freddie's version of events, he was there with Tim Brasher. So at least Tim Brasher was also signed up. Yeah, but they might have just said Freddie. Yeah, they might have just said Freddie. Maybe Brasher hasn't, you know, like dotted the I's and crossed the T's on the contract. Uh, but I, I like to think that Brad Fittler's Tim Brasher is like a Tyler Durden style figure. You know? <laughs> Ask him for another hundred grand. <laughs> Let's go get drunk in Jermoyne. <laughs> if we find out that that didn't happen, it's in <laughs> Freddie's mind, oh, I would love it. So at that point, Harrigan didn't decide what he was going to do. He was going to go back to Newcastle and think about it. But he did have two very firm offers in place. The ARL one included a signing bonus of 650... Oh, sorry, not signing bonus, a loyalty agreement of $650,000. Very loyal. <laughs> I'd be loyal for that. So there are a lot of pertinent reasons to stay loyal, but I also actually do think that Chief's sentiment is genuine when he says something like this. The one lifeboat I kept swimming back to in my mind sea of confusion was that if it wasn't for the ARL, I'd never have achieved everything I had in the game. Every goal I'd accomplished from playing sub-junior footy with Valentine through to representing Newcastle, New South Wales and Australia was made possible by the ARL. Without the ARL and its traditions and structures, I wouldn't be standing here in this office, a stake in some multi-million dollar bidding war between two high-powered organisations. Perhaps the hierarchy of the day and ARL administrators through the years might have made some mistakes along the way, I don't know, but they allowed me to be in this position. That had to stay in my mind's equation at all times, unless, of course, there wasn't going to be an ARL to be loyal to. I believe that as well. So I think everyone's default position was that. It's just if there wasn't a lot of money being offered to Matt Super League, that sentiment would have been put on the back burner. So I don't knock the players who signed for Super League, but I also think that's a genuine thing from Chief and and something that he really did take into account. Yeah. It wasn't just the highest bidder was going to get him. Yeah, you can tell by looking at the guy who's a stand-up guy. Mm. And another moment of this story that I find really touching goes back to that bond with his brother. So I'll just read this. Uh, Most of these quotes you're hearing from Paul Harrigan come from his book, One Perfect Day. As I turned and took a few steps toward the middle of the room, Mark did likewise and we faced each other. The first sign of a smile appeared on the corner of his mouth and he was nodding. Then I became aware that I was doing exactly the same thing. The silence was broken almost simultaneously, as we said, ARL, in a way that was like asking and answering the same question. Pretty cool. And with that, the decision was made. Uh, Interestingly, as he was leaving, he bumped into Ricky Stewart who was at Phillip Street for their plea to get him to go back to the ARL. And you can see Stuart as a kind of inverse chief in a lot of ways. So they both were in a position to have got both sides of the story, which for a lot of players, that wasn't the case. They'd either been cornered by Super League and signed Mm. or headed into the lolly shop at Phillip Street during the week and signed up without getting the Super League story. With Stuart, he had a choice between signing with Super League or abandoning his mates. Harrigan was in the position of getting his mates to join him. It's funny, though, because he sort of made the decision based on his own personal um, elder rider yeah. and then was dealing with the mates. What would he have done if the mates have gone to Super League? This is what I want to talk about. So 
Malcolm Node talking about Paul Harrigan said, they called him the chief and he was the chief. The rest of the team respected him and followed his lead. We knew if we didn't get him on side, it was going to be very difficult to get the others. Whoever signed Harrigan was a very good chance to sign the rest. Agree, but I mean, still, if they threw a lot of money at everybody else. This is what I want to say about Harrigan. It's one thing for a Super League figure to say that or someone at the ARL saying it, but for Harrigan to just sign with the belief that his men would follow. Yeah. Again, it shows you his balls and it shows you what a leader he was. I don't think he's ever been a guy in rugby league as beloved by his troops. Yeah. And chief, Mm. still. And so while he was at the ARL... Super League were actually in the box seat with the rest of the Knights because they'd gone up to Newcastle to speak to the rest of the team. And at this point, we're getting an insight into the News Limited presentation style. And some of those questions about what sort of equipment they were using are closer to being answered. So the presentation was given by Malcolm Node and it was widely ridiculed for being a bad presentation. So in Mike Coleman's Super League book, he writes... Node plugged in the club's slide projector only to find it didn't work. He was forced to do the presentation, carefully scripted to go along with the slides, without any visual aids. After the board meeting, he spoke to Malcolm Reilly and Robert Finch and really drove him to training to do a presentation to the players at Marathon Stadium. This time I set up the projector and it worked fine, said Known. Problem was, when I started showing the slides, they were all out of order, so I couldn't use them there either. <laughs> Rookie mistake you go in a rugby league club, you bring your own projector. That's number one. If you can't prep your own slides, mate, get, get out of the game. And uh, so Matthew Johns talking about the presentation said, their presentation wasn't that impressive. Some of the boys were even booing them because it took them so long to get their slide projector to work. <laughs> Hang on. They kind of give them like double their money and they're booing them. <laughs> I love the rugby league mentality so much. And he even goes on to say, so the presentation was given by Malcolm Node and John Atanaskovich from Atanaskovich Hartnell, the solicitors we heard about in earlier chapters. And Matty John said, I think if they sent Mal Meninga and another player or a bloke we'd heard of up to talk to us, instead of Malcolm Node and John the Mexican, we probably would have signed then and there. <laughs> what? John the Mexican? That's what they called Atanaskovich for, I'm sure, you know... <laughs> I'm not too sure Tarnaskovich is a Hispanic name, but we'll, um, <laughs> we'll let him get away with that. So Mal Menenga, a man renowned for terrible presentations. <laughs> <laughs> so that would have carried more weight than a highly successful lawyer with his name on a building in the middle of the city. <laughs> you reckon they were booing them and calling them Derricks yeah. and Nuffies? <laughs> So with that, Super League may have been in the box seat, but Paul Harrigan was going to have his say about it. So he went back up to Newcastle and said to the rest of the team, you guys have got to do what you've you got to do, but don't sign anything yet. How about we go down to the ARL and we'll hear what they have to say. So that was the plan. They were going to get down to the ARL the next day. But Brad Mellon, the CEO, actually came up to Harrigan and said, at a later point and said, oh, they're going to come up here. I've spoken to them and they said they were going to come up here. So Harrigan and the Knights sat around waiting. And then at some point, Paul Harrigan called Bob Fulton and said, uh, what, what's going on? When are you guys getting here? And Fulton said, mate, we're flat out down here. Just nothing's changed. You guys have got to come down here. So you can see some subtle subterfuge there from the Knights 
bosses. So Mellon was pro Super League. Yeah. Well, that's that's Harrigan's uh, uh, account of this of the story. Right. And so this is where we get the title of our chapter. Paul Harrigan has to get the team down. Bob Fulton says, "I don't care how you get them down here. Just get them down here." So he hires a minibus, drives the team down to Sydney. So this is my question since the year died. So it was definitely a minibus. It, in his words, it's a minibus. So how many players fit on that then? Well, 24? You, you can get the, those 20, 25, 30 seaters. So you could get most of the, the first grade squad. And you can drive that with a class 1A license, can you? <laughs> well, I, I don't think it was a, a, a mode of transportation that he was very familiar with driving because he said... The boys gave me a hard time about my efforts behind the wheel because I gave the gearbox and the clutch a bit of a touch-up on the way to Sydney. Manoeuvring the bus in the ARL's underground car park proved just as taxing as the drive down, but I managed to squeeze in without ripping the top off on the pipes hanging from the low concrete ceiling. <laughs> just reading that, this is a side note, but reading that on top of the booing Malcolm Node's presentation when he's about to you know, make the millionaires, <laughs> like... How many promising rugby league careers do you think would have been nipped in the bud by a player being unable to handle G-up culture? (laughs) (laughs) I would have hated that environment. I don't know if I could have copped it. But this is the thing. This is why I'm so disliked in Sydney. That is Newcastle culture. It's not rugby league culture. G-up culture is Newcastle culture. Like vicious insults (laughs) to friends and family is just how you communicate. So from that point on in Super League circles... Paul Harrigan was called derisively the bus driver and it led to a lot of speculation that he'd been looked after to get the players to sign up, given some extra incentives. You reckon a piece of each when they sign? Well, he categorically denies anything like that happening. He says he said that it actually cost him money because he had to hire the minibus from a local trucking company. <laughs> I, th- I think that's something the ARL could have reimbursed him for. Oh, definitely. 220 or whatever it cost. But... It was reimbursed enough at the start with the loyalty yeah, bonus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. And then at the end of the year when he played the World Cup and was made captain for a game against South Africa, that was viewed by some also as, as a kind of, you know, a sweetener to say thanks for all you did. Well deserved though as well. Yeah. So the Knights headed down and got the same spiel that they'd given Paul Harrigan. They didn't sign then there. They were given time to think about it. So the team headed back to Newcastle and on Thursday night, Phil Gould came up to deliver uh, an oration and hopefully sign them all up. At the same time, Malcolm Node was also waiting to sign up any players who wanted to jump ship. Taking calls from the projection repairer. <laughs> and at this point, we should also talk about Phil Gould's ability to deliver a rousing speech, which for all we bag him out, I, I even miss his pre-origin monologues, you know. He's definitely an inspiring coach and figure he's yeah he's clearly one of those guys who knows exactly what to say to a type of people to get them to lift yeah and it was the exact same thing in this situation so he addressed them on the thursday night and in andrew johns's words gus the master orator gave one of his great inspirational talks manny and i were sitting together and the whole time it felt like he was staring at us like he was talking to us directly he was talking about the tradition of the game and that this sort of stuff. It was impressive. Time and time again, we've seen the impact of having non-footballers address these blokes. Yeah. On top of the, the inspirational stuff and the, the selling the ARL's cause, he got another one up on them by addressing Brad Mellon directly and saying, what do you have to say to the players, Brad? You know, what, what does the board think? What, what are you guys going to do? And 
gave Mellon the chance to play his hand, but again, he didn't say anything and said that it was up to the players. And Phil Gould took the ball and ran with it saying, there you are, fellas. The chief executive of your club says it's up to you. <laughs> his skills in manipulation are scary, Yeah, Gould. But that might have all been for none if they weren't able to front up with comparable offers. And Newcastle, a team with one international, Paul Harrigan, ended up costing the ARL more than $8 million to sign, which was a million dollars more than they spent on any other team. Bloody hell. Worth it, though. Yeah. So they did, for the most part, sign up. We're going to talk a bit about some of those exceptions later in the episode. And one of my favorite moments was when Andrew Johns went in and decided to sign uh, for a, a deal that made him the sixth highest player in the ARL. player at that point who hadn't played any rep footy was two years into a career. One and a bit. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. One and a bit years into his career. He said that after signing, Gus looked him in the eye and said, I've coached a lot of young guys with so much potential and they sign big money contracts and can't live up to it. They get caught up with it all. I eyeballed him and said, you wait. You just wait to see us go. Just give you chills, doesn't it? I know. That wasn't a gamble, though. From anyone who saw his first year, just went, this guy's going to be straight (laughs) up. Also, what gave me chills was when the deal was done, they were driving back to Sydney. This was about 1.30 in the morning. Phil Gould decided to give John Quayle a call to let him know the news and John Quayle replied that's tremendous news you could just feel the like the weight lifting to to get that kind of phone call but interestingly enough the trip he made up to Newcastle he did with Steve Gillis and Wayne Beavis so all that talk from Super League about them being too close to the ARL well there's probably something to it yeah absolutely and with that Super League having missed out on the prior signing, there was a chance to do some revisionist history. So Malcolm Node in the end said that they walked away from Newcastle saying, it was just mad. Some people got overpaid. For me personally, it was very strange. You just had to divorce yourself from what was going on. I was signing footballers for $100,000 and thinking, well, I don't pay my people at News Limited this sort of money. (laughs) Do you think Michael O'Connor had got in his ear? (laughs) I... Prior to the series, we were trashing the ARL for sort of corporate incompetence, but this Super League pitch is just embarrassing. Yeah. The theme song for Super League shouldn't have been uh, Two Tribes. It should have been... (laughs) (laughs) Juggling clown. So now I want to talk about those defectors. Uh, That's that's maybe using the ARL's language. The the players who who, who did end up going to Super League. And there was a chance in the aftermath of the bulk of the night's signing that they could have even landed a few more. So later on in the war, in the next week or so, a few Knights players actually attended meetings with Super League to with the possibility of jumping ship. That includes the Johns brothers. Uh, Andrew Johns was there. So that meeting was with Lachlan Murdoch. So they finally decided to send in the big guns. And maybe because of that, Andrew Johns said that he was very nervous and there was a bowl of core mints on the table that, and he was just chain eating them, must have eaten about 30 of them. And at one point, Lachlan Murdoch's gone, the guy here, we can just pay him in call <laughs> So among the players who didn't stay with the Knights, the, the biggest one is Mark Sargent. It's such an interesting uh, move, that, still. I respected it, though. Is that the end of his career? Well, that's the thing. You could see where he was coming from because he was at the very end of his career. And in fact, he wouldn't get the chance to play 
Super League because his career was ended by injury in 1995. No more uh, Henny Penny commercials for Sarge. <laughs> but he might have uh, switched to McDonald's because he was actually on that bus to go down to Sydney. And before that even left Newcastle, he told Chief, I've got to get off the bus. He was writing a column for the Newcastle Herald at the time and said he had to get down the offices down there and finish his column. Uh, so they dropped him off at Belmont McDonald's. The- <laughs> The rest of the team went on their way and he went and signed with Super League. I think from memory, him and Matthew Robwell did do a McDonald's ad up there. And then um, Matthew Robwell's got this cheesy grin and he goes, what are you having, Sarge? And he goes, I'll have everything. I love that we've managed to get that story in twice now. <laughs> the course of 11 chapters. <laughs> I forget what I've said. Always. I think you said it was a Hungry Jack's ad originally. Really? No, I'm not sure. Um, Definitely matters. <laughs> so do you remember at the time any animosity towards Sargent? I was reading a lot about yeah. him, him being reviled. Yeah, people thought he was dog. So, um, I didn't. I thought he was well within his rights. But but, but yeah, so he went from being the you know the hometown hero, the, the number one boy to an outcast. But yet again, the stupidity of it. If a chief had got the boys to go to Super League, he's a hero. Yeah. So it's like, Jesus, guys. And it didn't last, so you know, within a few years he was back with a job in the night. So I think people were willing to forget it very well, quickly. This attitude is like the same people that wanted to boycott Bali when Chappelle Corby was jailed, you know. But now they're all there holidaying. Yeah. It's like these knee-jerk morons. Uh, hold, hold that under your hat, boycott and knee-jerk morons, because we've got some more of that <laughs> later, later in the episode. Uh, and the other big story with Mark Sargent in this whole era was, of course, the feud with Mal Reilly. So really came on board and knowing that Mark Sargent was coming to the end of his career was using him a little differently to how Sarge would have wanted to be used. So he was coming off the bench a lot more. He wasn't playing the minutes he would have liked. Uh, And so right from the start, this caused a bit of tension between the two of them. It was one of those situations where only one of the parties knew they were in a fight. So Mal really thought it was all sweet, <laughs> but Sarge was like silently bubbling. And so you'd think that probably played a part in him signing with Super League as well. Yeah, for sure. So, really, I'm really happy he got his payday though. Yeah. Such yeah. luck to be just almost retiring and not retired. So the next year after he'd retired, Sargent told the media that as far as my relationships with the Newcastle players are concerned, there have been no problems. I guess the only problem was the working relationship with Mal Reilly became a little bit tense after I made my decision. And that led to the famous incident in 1997, uh, which I'm going to read Mal Reilly's version of it from his book, Reilly. After the North Sydney game in September 97, the match that earned us a place in the grand final, I bumped into Mark in the Cricketers Hotel, where we'd stopped for a celebratory drink. Hello, Sarge, I said, and offered him my hand. He refused to shake it, so I just told him to piss off and that I'd be about any time he cared to make an issue of it. I was fuming. It had been a wonderfully successful day, and I didn't need this. My blood was boiling, and as you may have gathered, there's an element of latent aggression in me that can boil to the surface at times like this. (laughs) I stood there eyeballing him from across the room. Then Sarge headed towards the men's room and beckoned me to follow. I didn't need asking twice. I just threw my coat off and followed him in. Some of the players had seen what was going on and followed me in. Eventually, apart from some angry words, nothing eventuated, and I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How hard is he? Um, I assume you meant the Cricketers Arms Hotel. Yeah. Popular Knights Pub. Yeah. But um, good Lord, I mean, the coach fighting the prop. I mean, 
<laughs> and, Unbelievable. And this latent aggression, <laughs> getting so mad just because he wouldn't shake his hand. <laughs> but still, that's quite disrespectful. It is. From such. I don't think Mal really's ever taken the high road. I think he's a low road. <laughs> sort of out with your fists. So we should note, we're, we're going to talk about really a bit more, but we should just note the other players that went to Super League from the Knights. So you had Robbie McCormack, Paul Marquette, Brad Godden, a few others. But what they did really well was getting some of the best of the junior talent with Brett Kamali, Robbie Ross. Scott Hill. Yes, yeah, Scott Hill, exactly. That's why I thought Super League really fell down. If they got the star players, which you needed, and got all the juniors on big money, all the up-and-comers, they could have starved the arrow out of the whole thing. Mm. Easy to be an armchair quarterback, mind you. But but so really, we talked about it in our Phillips Street episode, but reading the research for this episode has reinforced the point to me that his loyalty payment was so fundamentally unnecessary. Like, it's perhaps the most egregious display of money-wasting in the whole saga. Chiefs. No, Mal, Mal Reilly. Oh, yeah, right, right, yeah. So he wasn't signed until after the players signed. He just arrived in the country. He coached four games, four uh, premiership games with the Knights at that point. <laughs> like, what, what, why was he such a, a prize? Yeah. Like, if he w- didn't have the relationship with Bozo and Arco, is he getting that money? I don't know. I suppose I would have given him something just to keep the continuity of the of the club. But I mean, all that money that he got probably probably unnecessary. Yeah, and I mean, he did have a an offer on the table from Super League that he may well have gone to. But his options for Super League were once the Knights signed were to either be the Hunter Mariners coach, which probably puts uh, Graham Murray in Adelaide. But he wasn't a revered coach then. No, in Australia. Yeah, until '97. But the fact that there was a substantial offer from Super League means that he, if he did sign, he would have got a job and I'd say the Mariners would have been the most likely one. Yeah. But has there ever been, beyond that money, has there ever been a better match for coach and city than Mal Reilly and Newcastle? No, he's still revered. So I'll, I'll read this quote from his book. As I learned on my arrival in Newcastle late in 1994, the city had a rugby league tradition which stretched back into the mists of time. Newcastle Club was formed as soon as rugby league began in Australia. But born again in fresh, new garb in 1988, the Knights had been trying for the last decade to win the Premiership. A city whose winter religion was the game of rugby league willed them to do it. Now, with a football coach born 18,000 kilometres away, but in a mining community that was not so very different, they stood on the brink. I've had this theory on Novocastrians, right? It's almost, I've been to Manchester and up north in England, the mentality of the people is exactly the same, right? It's sort of suspicious, think everyone's trying to get one over you, chip on your shoulder type attitude, miserable. But we live in the sunshine with beautiful beaches, <laughs> which makes us even worse because they live in the north of England. You're supposed to be like that. Yeah. So like we're worse than them. Like just sitting out on the waves off Merriweather Beach, just glowering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he stays with the ARL and I love how willing he was to get into the fight like falling out with Knights administrators who <laughs> ended up jumping ship. You know, He said, so Robert Finch eventually left the job as football man- manager of the Knights to take up the same role with Super League. And after forming a close friendship early on, really said, the whole situation led to a rift between Robert Finch and me. Like, <laughs> You've known him for four weeks. <laughs> uh, he screams loyalty though, Mel. And, and this fight became public at times when Wally Lewis faxed some comments into a Channel 7 sports show suggesting that really had made approaches to Super League and then gone to ARL to get a better offer. 
really took ex- exception, uh, but he, he wanted to, to clarify some things about it. So I'll just re- read this report from the Rugby League Week. Despite their public brawl on Channel 7 last Sunday, Rugby League icons Wally Lewis and Malcolm Reilly hold no f- hard feelings toward each other. Reilly said last Tuesday that by telling Lewis in a fax to get stuffed, he said he was referring only to one isolated issue. I don't mean get stuffed in general, just get stuffed over this particular issue in which he was wrong. <laughs> Did you say fax? Yeah. <laughs> so while he's sitting at home with his fax getting beep, 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 <laughs> get stuffed. What's more rugby league than that? So we've teased it out. So we should get into the Knights administration at this point. So John Rebo's quote was that the administration were in it up to their eyeballs. They had a lot of discussions. They'd given every indication that they were supportive of Super League, which just makes everything about it just that more staggering. Why didn't they say to Super League, if you don't get Chief, we're stuffed? Yeah. Like, <laughs> they should have known that anyway, but even if they, if they didn't know it, these administrators should have been pushing it. And from the, the Knights' perspective, when all of the other key teams were at least keeping key players in the loop, at least had the coach on board, were taking these steps. The Knights seemed to just be willing to let them all find out on April Fool's Day. And, <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> the Knights were the only people that found out then. <laughs> <laughs> and so after the Knights signed, as they were drinking their champagne, which Andrew John said it was the first time he tasted it in his life and it tasted awful in his opinion, one of the Knights administrators came up to Matthew Johns and said, Congratulations, I hope you're happy. You've just fucked the club. <laughs> Did they name names? No, they didn't. But I mean, you could. we're going to mention three or four names in this segment. And so you could take your pick out of those. So you had all the, the key Knights administrators were keen on Super League. So Terry Lawler, the chairman, expressed support on multiple occasions for Super League. He ended up staying at the Knights which probably explains why he was gone, you know, within a year or so. Chief Executive Brad Mellon ended up jumping ship and taking on the CEO role at the Western Reds. Robert Finch, the football manager, as we said, had the same role at the Hunter Mariners. Neil Cadigan, the journalist who at that point was the Knights marketing manager, took up a similar role with Super League. I can remember reading that and going, Neil Cadigan, wow, from Rugby League Week? Yeah, it's, yeah, I know. It's incredible. And Keith Onslow, who was a, a big guy in the, the Knights' development uh, sphere he took up the same role with the Mariners so when you think about that that's most of the key figures at the club gone I don't know why there's so much vitriol against administrators like there's not that many jobs in football it's a gravy train take what you can get like... and at that point you have to remember when they were making their decision and there was no certainty about what was going to happen and on April 1 it looked like Super League was going to be the only game in town so that sentiment about the Knights players screwing over the club by staying loyal, even though they balls it up so it's their own fault, you can understand their mentality and where they're coming from. So who screwed up the club when they were $2 million in the red? (laughs) (laughs) So I think Robert Finch sums up this sentiment quite well. It was easy for others to pass judgment, but it was an incredibly emotional, confusing time. Everyone had to make a decision which way to go with little time to think. The players, the coach, it was the same with us. We all knew we were going from one of the top clubs with an enormous following in its best ever season to the unknown, but we saw something there. It wasn't a decision we took lightly. At the same time, there was still a lot of indecision and lack of confidence within the Knights. The vibes were they were still worried about their future. Talk about the Knights when they signed with the ARL was, we're playing in the pub comp. 
<laughs> the other thing you have to remember is that they were seven years old. They didn't have this, you know, historic association with the league. Yeah. But, I mean, it's funny. The feeling was uh, that it had been there forever, though. Yeah. Even in, like, 92, it felt like you go to Newcastle, you get a tough game. Mate. They put in, you know. Yeah. So, with that, with the Knights administration gone, but the Knights club and players staying loyal, Super League were in a bind. As we said, by the end of the month, they'd announced that they were going to have a Hunter franchise regardless. Just to put it in perspective, it'd be like the Boston Celtics thing of them going, we're going to have another shittier Boston basketball team. Um, and they're going to be in just a thorn in your side. Just get behind them, Boston. But one way they got around that was to go to that Newcastle power base. So it was Newcastle Wests who were brought in to be that presence and be that Super League club. But then their home ground was the old Newcastle Australs NSL ground, which was basically... I played soccer there as a kid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so the other problem they had with that was that Newcastle West weren't universally loved in the town. In fact, one person said that they're the maggots. Everyone calls them that, have done for years. Even the kids call them the maggots. <laughs> I know they weren't loved at Macquarie Scorpions, where I'm from, Toronto Scorpions. So the only thing I knew about Newcastle West until recently was that that was the place where you went anytime there was a problem with the Knights, the fans would congregate outside Newcastle West protesting whether it's, <laughs> you know, what was happening with Super League, whether Matthew Johns wasn't getting signed. Let's all get down Newcastle West with our signs. Is that when um, Gary Johns told them they should burn in hell? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny, it's come full circle. Now West of the... Uh... Yeah, but you mentioned that being the talk... At this point, but in from the early days of the Knights, oh, if only we had Newcastle West money. Yeah. So the ARL or the Knights were wanting West to take an active involvement in the club, but the concern from West was we're giving you all the money and you're not giving us any of the control. So they could never get to an agreement with the Knights because of that. <laughs> so Super League, in their mind, was an opportunity to get into the game and have some more of that control. But I mean... It's kind of a Mickey Mouse setup thrown together as it had to have been in that short period of yeah. time. I don't see why, why West was so keen to get on board with the Mariners. Maybe they thought they'd merge eventually or something. I think it's more they seeing where the wind was going to blow yeah. and, and thinking that with the Knights playing in the pub comp, this was a chance for them to become the Newcastle team. Yeah. So however everything shook out, whether it was a merger between the two clubs, whether it was the ARL going south and the Knights folding, this was Newcastle West time to take over the town. So Newcastle West boss Bob Ferris became the face of the Super League Newcastle franchise from this point on uh, and was and was typically hated in Newcastle because of it. And at this point, this is where everything really starts to kick off in terms of the toxic environment in the town of Newcastle. <laughs> So once Newcastle West decided to get involved, a petition formed from members. They had to get 350 members' signatures to force an emergency board meeting. When you have 30,000 members, 350 signatures isn't too hard to get. I hate all these petty rules of these like pokies clubs. Yeah. Like, it just <laughs> sucks. So with that, they had the numbers for an emergency board meeting to which 5,000 members turned up. They had to take it to the, the oval across the road. <laughs> just as a side note the pettiness of licensed club culture 
Newcastle Workers Club was like a, they had a disco called the world's biggest disco on Saturday nights, right? And you'd go there and as late as 97, you'd pay $2 entry, right? But the bouncers were the biggest dickheads in the world. Yeah. Just unbelievably bad, arrogant bouncers. Yeah. And people would walk up in like a Ocean of Earth shirt or something would have a logo on it and they'd go, no logos, mate. You got to have a collared shirt or no logos, right? <laughs> but you could take the shirt off and turn it inside out and wear that in. <laughs> as long as there was no logos showing. So blokes taking their shirt shirts off on the street, turning them inside out. Totally was... fine. <laughs> That's the culture of licensed clubs in that period. Yeah, you can even get in in thongs these days. That's how much they're desperate for any traffic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with this meeting. This is the birth of the the Aussies for the ARL, which was the the pro Knights group that we're going to talk about at the back end of the episode. There was a big media campaign to stop Newcastle West from getting involved. And with those 5,000 people turning up to protest and to vote against them taking up that Super League franchise, the deal fell apart. So Super League had missed out on Newcastle West as well, but they weren't going to be dissuaded. Heading up the new independent Super League franchise was going to be Bob Ferris, who left Newcastle West. Uh, and in his account, it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made in my life. I really didn't know how difficult it would be. I felt I just couldn't turn my back on Super League. I believed if I did, it would have been the end of Super League and the Hunter. Plus, I had been the one who hired all the staff. I couldn't walk away from them. It would have been like deserting them. And who was that that they were going to be deserting? The Hunter Mariners. So they were announced on July 27 at a gala season launch featuring the might of John Bertrand and Kay Cotty. <laughs> what is it with the choice of uh, celebrity for rugby league functions? Like, it's on brand with the Mariners theme, but it goes back to what we were talking about. Like, could you name a yacht captain now? <laughs> and could you have named one since John Bertrand and Kay Cotty? Yeah. Like, they tried to force Jessica Watson on us a few years ago, but... I don't think the public was buying it, but Kay Cotty, like she was massive in 88. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you think of the, of the name Mariners? Well, does it reflect the Newcastle history? I must say, I, I'd imagine it would be. We've got a town. harbour, but I never thought of us as Mariners. But I mean, uh, it sounded all right. I didn't like it at the time, but it was and, okay. And also calling them Hunter. Like when I think of Hunter, I think more inland. I don't necessarily think of Newcastle straight away. So I think there's a disconnect between Hunter yeah, and Mariners. Yeah, agreed. Well, the ground was quite inland-ish. Mm. You know, it's not the sea. So, <laughs> and we're not going to spend much time on the Mariners tonight because that's a separate chapter at some point. But just a couple of things on the way they were put together. Firstly was the coach, which, as we talked about, ended up being Graham Murray. At one point, it was Peter Louis, so he'd been offered the job before Murray got it. I think Peter Louis would have done a fine job as well, but we, Mariners really lucked out with Murray. Yeah. Be- the, beautiful signing. And... They managed to put together a pretty good squad it was first a year. Unreal squad. We had we had all these great uh, up and comers and some old hardheads. I really got behind them. And it formed the basis of Melbourne. So John so, Carlaw was a young player. So let's talk about that movement, the the Aussies for the ARL, the the campaign to secure the Knights and to crush anything Super League in the, the Newcastle region. Does that mean that you can't be pro Knights if you're from some other ethnic, ethnicity? <laughs> <laughs> This is like what I wanted to start with this Aussies for the ARL. You just automatically get some some weird vibes with that. (laughs) Heading it up was Barbara Davis, who was the longtime manager of Belmont City Centre, a thriving shopping centre in the district. I actually tried to get 
get to the bottom of, of Barbara Davis, what a go is political persuasions, other campaigns she might have been a part of. She did end up having a brief period on the Knights board. All I could really find beyond that was hates hoodies. So she banned hoodies from the Belmont City Centre thanks to some antisocial behaviour from some young hoodlums. <laughs> what, you mean like sloppy Joe with a, with a hood? <laughs> yes. All right. The very same. I thought you meant like hoodlums. <laughs> so the Aussies for the ARL launched a sustained campaign against all things Super League, jamming the have your say lines at the Newcastle Herald, boycotting businesses who had anything to do with... Boycotting. <laughs> and this, this went as far as going to the council for any minor thing that the Super League wanted to get going. At one point, uh, the Mojo advertising agency were handling the Hunter Mariners account and and they sent a letter to a council committee asking about the flagpoles that ran down the main street with the idea of putting some Mariners uh, flags up. So someone at that committee meeting leaked it to the Newcastle Herald <laughs> that Super League wanted to buy the flagpoles to hang Mariners banners. <laughs> The next night, Barbara Davis was on the news saying that if those Mariner flags were flying, thousands of ARL supporters would boycott shops and businesses in the area. (laughs) So council took a vote, voted to let them hang the flags anyway, but at that point, Super League decided they weren't interested anymore and (laughs) moved on. So, so much of that toxicity seemed to be Mariners-based. But from your perspective, do you remember most of the, the vitriol being... Mariners or just Super League in general? Definitely Super League in general, but there was specific uh, vitriol directed at the Mariners because they were, you know... Well, I guess the local representative yeah. of everything that was Super League. So, like, blokes that got the golf course or blokes at school or in the pub or whatever would be spouting off how Super League are awful, but they'd specifically hate the Mariners with yeah. a passion. <laughs> so, at one point, a story came up that at Newcastle West's... Uh, a mural of Johnny Raper, who finished his career there in the early 70s, which hang on the wall, was removed from the club's foyer and thrown in a skip bin. Uh, that was eventually proved unfounded, but not before Barbara Davis said that she'd be consulting her solicitor about it. <laughs> uh, you, you're the legal minds of this operation. What are the legalities of throwing out a mural of Johnny Raper? Well, maybe there's a grounds for trespass to mural. I don't know. <laughs> But regardless, there there doesn't seem to be anything to that story. The, the, <laughs> the mural <laughs> ended the war unscathed. There's a big culture. Obviously, the culture of Newcastle was mining and steelworks, right? Big union town. This has got all the hallmarks of a union organizer, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and this is considered one of Graham Richardson's great victories. And having all those union connections he was actually up there a lot and getting people on side. So John Rebo actually said that that was an advantage the ARL had, that they had those connections. No one loves an obstinate strike more than an orchestrian. (laughs) But it pretty quickly got very, very ugly, particularly uh, in relation to the Mariners, with Bob Ferris regularly receiving death threats and his staff being abused. So he said... I got phone calls, shocking stuff. They went as far as threatening murder. My second in charge at the club has young children. He had to get an unlisted number because of the obscene calls. We considered getting counselling for the girls on the switch because of the calls they were getting. The Bloody language and threats. hell. It's just sickening. Yeah. 
Just small-minded, bloody idiots. The funny thing is, though, the Mariners' office was on the main drag of Broadmeadow, right near Knights Stadium. Oh, yeah. So, like, you drive past on the way to Newcastle through Broadmeadow, and there'd be, like, a smash window <laughs> in the Mariners' office. And then, of course, the big fight was over the stadium with the Terry Lawler at the Knights denying the Mariners the opportunity to play at Marathon Stadium. I'll tell you what, if that had happened, I reckon there would have been violence. If they'd have played there. Yeah. Yeah, like you can really see some 80s English soccer style. Yeah, yeah. And from that point, the Aussies for the ARL seized every opportunity to scupper any other stadium they might have played at. So at one point, the Newcastle sports ground was going to be used. Well, that would have been worse than Austral Stadium. (laughs) So, well, it wouldn't have been because it was going to involve extensive refurbishment. So it would have been brought up to standard that News Limited was going to fund completely. But then the Aussies for the ARL stepped in and launched a campaign to ban Super League from the ground. That campaign worked because it became a big political issue, so Super League dropped out and looked elsewhere. That's where they turned to the Newcastle Breakers Soccer Stadium or Topper Stadium. Topper, that's right. As as it's also known. (laughs) I remember that now. (laughs) So when that news hit the papers, Barbara Davis and the Aussies for the ARL headed to the streets, headed to the ground to voice their protest. They told the soccer officials that on behalf of the Aussies for the ARL, they declared that they would never attend another Breakers game. <laughs> well, that would make 99% of Newcastle <laughs> as well. So in, in Mike Coleman's Super League book, uh, he says, as they had never been seen at a match, club officials were unmoved. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be like, I'm, I'm never attending local badminton again. <laughs> So I've got a closing quote about the environment of Newcastle at the time, but do you have anything else to say about it before we do move on? It's bringing back a lot of bad memories because I was, well, still am a contrarian type personality. At school, I was baiting a lot of people, wearing my Mariners polo around that I got in my Mariners uh, focus group and you know, graffitiing Super League signs on the back of the chair, just <laughs> just really annoying people. So I was in the thick of the uh, of the hatred, but... It's a 15-year-old wearing that to like Toronto Golf Club or Morissette Golf Club to play in my local junior comps and and men giving me the death eye and saying, what are you wearing that bullshit for and stuff like that. Crazy. But you, you often mention that it's very emblematic of Newcastle as a whole. And I, I think Robert Finch summed it up well. So I'm just going to read this. It was like the people of Newcastle closed ranks. You have to hand it to them. It's a credit to them the way they stuck together. But I'm not sure too many knew what they were sticking together for. <laughs> not too many stopped to look at all the great things Super League could have given the area. That sums it up perfectly. It's like we're sticking together and we're going to join this angry mob. What's it for again? <laughs> <laughs> Is closing ranks a fairly natural state? <laughs> well, it's, it's, that's close to siege mentality, yeah. <laughs> which is a natural state. <laughs> So the Mariners were up against it from the start as a result of all this. The PR campaign took its toll. Despite their best efforts to get on the front foot, they had a 24-hour roster set up that if any time there was a need to visit a sick kid, players were on hand. Uh, One newspaper photographer said that he'd arranged for a shoot and wanted to get an early start and at 5.30 the whole team was there in their uniforms doing all they could to get some sort of public support but... It was dire from the start. So the Mariners brought in a consultant to do some financial projections. And one Super League insider said, mate, 
if you took a look at it, you'd fair dinkum neck yourself. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about pushing shit uphill? Yeah. This is like the ultimate. It's a wonder they had any crowds at all. There was so much against them, even to the point that when they launched their season in February of 1996, they had lunches and dinners planned and this extravaganza where they were going to launch the season they had supplements to go in the newcastle herald the team was going to be presented all this great stuff was going on justice burchett's decision denying the right of super league to start came down days before that (laughs) opening which they decided to hold anyway mike coleman paints a compelling picture of what an event it was going to be so i'll read this the club band would play the team song for the first time in public as the cheer squad the ship shapes 20 local school kids who'd been working for months on their routine high-stepped their way down the gangplank. Fireworks would light the night sky. The first editions of the newspaper supplement would be distributed. The Mariners would have arrived. The Mariners had booked a double side at the Newcastle show, visited annually by crowds of up to 120,000 starting the next day until it closed on Saturday. The ship shapes would cavort and players would distribute a 1,000 Mariners show bags packed with a poster, stickers, a cap, ruler and a Mars bar. Newcastle show was a big thing. So, as I said, the Mariners weren't to be dissuaded. The show went on. The season launch happened. Uh, And I've talked about how I think accusations that Mike Coleman's book was biased towards Super League are a bit overblown. But this is a case for the prosecution. So (laughs) I'm going to end our chapter with this note of optimism from the Mariners. So Bob Ferris was saying that the season launch was going, everything was going good. Then... Just as the band was about to start playing, it started raining. I'll let Ferris take it from here. So this is a quote from Mike Coleman's Super League book. I remember looking up at the sky and thinking, oh geez, now this. Is there anything else you can do to us? Ferris said. The players scrambled off the boat in the rain while someone found a tape of the club song. As it came over the loudspeakers, Peter Blackburn, the man who had coached the ship shapes, asked the young girls if they wanted to call the show off. No way, came the reply from the group, huddled in the back of the boat. We want to go on. As the ship shapes strutted their stuff down the gangplank, their hair wet, their makeup running, and their enthusiasm bubbling over, it was all Bob Ferris and his men could do to keep their emotions in check. That was the spirit, Ferris said. That was what we were all about. <laughs> the ship shapes show more bloody ticker than half the Super League. <laughs> so, on that note, this chapter ends. Newcastle. One of a kind, right? Uh, this was a. Despite all this toxicity and how important, how pivotal all of this was to the war, this was a really, really fun episode to research. Because <laughs> you know you're going to get the most narrow-minded views possible. So I hope you all enjoyed it listening. As always, please send us an email to the rugby league digest at gmail.com. I particularly want to hear from any Novocastrians who were there at the time. Yeah, I mean, I blocked a lot of this out, like even Topper. Stadium, yeah. like Topper is like a, a clothing brand, right? Yeah. A, a low-level clothing <laughs> brand. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just so much coming flooding back to me now. It's just... So, yeah, so any other memories that any of you might have, send them through. Uh, hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. As always, I'm going to give my book plug of the week, and this week I'm going to go with Paul Harrigan's One Perfect Day. Very detailed description of everything going on at this time, so highly recommended from that respect. Uh, just as we get out of here, there's been people asking for a Rugby League Digest meetup, uh, and we would love to make that happen. So we just want to gauge some interest at this point. So if you are interested, please let us know. This will be for, for Sydney-based listeners. 
to start off with, obviously. But uh, what do you think we're going to go on the road? <laughs> well, you know, early days, mate. But who knows where <laughs> we'll end up. So uh, please let us know if you would be keen for a podcast meetup at some point, and we can start making some plans to see if we have to leave Newcastle West and head to the stadium across the road if, if we get a big enough crowd. But uh, regardless where we end up, we'd love to make this happen. So let us know. Uh, and on that note, we will get out of here. So we will speak to you next week. Toodaloo.